my friends, the great experiment. This business is not for the weak of heart. Hit it. Trink, trink. Would you look at that? The greatest trink, trink. Would you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of star trink. Welcome to Greatest Trek. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Week seven of Greatest Trek Spring Break. We made it. We're here. No one's ever had seven weeks of spring break. (laughs) But you're a freelancer as an adult. Yeah. You can have surprise spring breaks happen all over the place. Oh, yeah. And you're really struggling. Yeah, that, that was almost my favorite time. You don't want that. (laughs) I feel like the film business usually slows down in the winter in New York because of the weather. and That's how it was in Seattle. I was always the opposite. Like, I'd be super slow in the summers, and it sucked because, like, you want extra money in the summers to, like, you know, do a weekend trip or something. Do the fun summer stuff that costs money. And I was always so fucking broke over the summer for some reason. Yeah. I just had a very hard time not taking work whenever. Like, I would just take too much work. And I would see an opportunity to create a spring break. Yeah. But I would never take that because of the paranoia of, like, you don't answer the phone that one time, you're not going to get a call back. Yeah, yeah. I I never had enough clients that that I had that kind of challenge. I was never a, there's too much work and I just don't know which to pick guy. I just had one giant client that just firehosed me work. Yeah. And that's how it went for me. Mm. Not anymore. Now it's a couple of leaky Star Trek pipes. <laughs> Hence our spring break <laughs> episodes, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we haven't talked on the show about the writer's strike, but it has shut down production on some Star Trek stuff. Right. We got a tip off about a, a Star Trek specific picket line that the WGA was doing. And I really wanted to go and uh, throw in my support, but it wasn't really workable because of childcare issues the day that we heard about it. And we kind of heard like very last minute, but uh, I think uh, we should probably just say for the record, we like totally stand with the WGA. We're recording this a bit ahead of when it's actually going to be released. So who knows where the uh, situation is by the time this comes out. Yeah, we're we're both union men. We always have been. He was more than a hero. He was a union man. Yeah, the fucking companies that are making billions of dollars on the media landscape and like trying to find ways not to pay the people that actually make the stuff that we all watch are fucking, they should be ashamed of themselves letting it come to this. One of the miracles of what we do, Ben, is... Being fortunate enough to receive a living wage for creative work, and it's something that I wish for any creative person out there, and it's just a damn shame that it's not like that for most. We're very lucky to have a model where we're basically able to appeal directly to our listeners, and for so many people that want to live a life where they're making creative stuff for a living... Uh, you don't get that opportunity. Usually you have to go to work for a company that owns the thing that you make and then pays you a pittance. Even if you are represented by a guild right. or a union, uh, often they they find a loophole because like, oh, it's a new technology, so none of the existing rules stand. That shit yeah. sucks. Yeah, it really does. Absolute solidarity with 
are striking creators. And uh, I don't know, if you live in L.A., the least you can do is give them a honk and a thumbs up as you pass. I know I've been doing that quite a bit, but I know there are resources available online where you can do a little bit more than that if you have the time and the energy to do it. There's a war chest you can contribute to. You can probably bring some food out to some picket lines. Yeah. Support in all kinds of ways. The writers are striking, and that is because the writers are getting fucked over in particular, but that means everybody up and down the call sheet is out of work at the moment. And there's a mutual aid fund to support folks who being out of work is a big problem for. So that's entertainmentcommunity.org to support the fund. And, um, you know, like a lot of people work really, really hard to bring us the shows that we love to watch and talk about on on this show. So if you're uh, at all in a position to to help some folks who are, you know, having a hard time because a bunch of rich assholes that live on hillsides in L.A. don't want to pay a fair rate for this stuff. Yeah, go go support them directly. I read online somewhere that, uh, you know, all the great television that we've consumed over the last time in Miriam <laughs> is all due to the writers that make it possible. And, and what I read that made me laugh lately was that when you put executives in charge of the creative lane, you get a quibby. <laughs> <laughs> And that's really true, right? Yeah, and I mean, I'm like, I'm glad Quibi failed because it was explicitly a play at de-unionizing more of the entertainment industry. Yeah. It was like, oh, it's a short thing that's online, so we don't have to treat this like it's real work that you know people need to earn a, a living wage yeah. to do. Anyways, we've gone off on a rant, and maybe this will all, you know, God willing, the producers will have come to their senses, and this will all be obsolete by the time yeah. this airs. But uh, we're uh, getting really excited for new Star Trek, and next week we will be uh, launching our review of Season 2 of Strange New Worlds, starring Anson Mount. That's right. And what better way to get ourselves situated, get lubed up for that, than to watch one of his uh, previous works, the pilot of uh, the previous television show he was the star of. Yeah, Anson Mount was a television star before his involvement in Star Trek. And who knew? <laughs> and Hell on Wheels was that vehicle. Yeah. I was really excited to watch this pilot because I was hoping that it would help us get to know this actor a little better through a very different performance. And based on what I saw in the pilot, uh, it is a very different type of Anson Mount than we've experienced before <laughs> in Strange New Worlds or in yeah. Star Trek Discovery. I'm excited to uh, get into it, Ben. What do you say we start talking Hell on Wheels, the pilot episode, season one, episode one. It's called Hell on Wheels. <laughs> Let's do it, buddy. Really interesting bit of connections here between this Spring Break episode and some others. Yeah. This is directed by David Von Anken, who directed the Tut miniseries. No kidding. How about that? <laughs> Which ties this episode directly to the Bar Rescue episode a few weeks previous. Yeah. We've also got just a bunch of, you know, greatest gen fave that guys in this episode. I mean, Colomini, more than a that guy, Colomini's a name brand. Speaking of union men. 
Yeah. I am Chief Miles Edward O'Brien. This is fucking spectacular. Tom Noonan is in this episode. He's uh, an actor we've enjoyed very much in the past. Absolutely. Ted Levine is in this episode. Yeah. As soon as I saw him pop up, I was like, oh boy, this has got Ben episode written all over it. Adam, I uh, I didn't clock him. Which character did he play? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Lot of fun, that person's in this episode. We start in Washington, D.C., 1865, right after the Civil War. Lincoln is dead, we're told. This came as a surprise. Yeah. Uh, to me and many people in Washington, D.C., I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had no idea. The very first frame of this show that isn't a text screen establishes that this is a visual language that is going to be fucked with a little bit. Like the color timing of this entire episode is very specific. Yeah. And it starts here in DC. And I wonder, I just want to put a pin in this, the kind of washed out colors of this Washington DC really evoked the forest scene later. Oh, interesting. Where the the attack happens. Yeah. And I wondered if there was a, a connection to be made there visually. I mean, this is its own attack. Mm. This uh, blue coat, a northern soldier or northern veteran, maybe. Thank you for your service. Goes into a Catholic church and uh, sits down in the confession booth. Starts unburdening himself of some of the uh, bad, bad things he got up to on Sherman's march. Can't quite do all of it, though. He stops short. Yeah. Evil, unspeakable things. My history teacher in middle school, I remember, said, hey, just a word to the wise. Don't ever make Sherman's march jokes around people from the South. They won't find it funny. Oh. Hmm. I don't know any of those jokes. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like a, uh, you know, like we really stuck it to you with that, I guess, would be yeah. kind of the thing he was trying to control for. But uh, right. Yeah. I mean, remembered as a real atrocity from that war. And uh, this guy was a participant. He gets asked by the priest to whom he is confessing about Meridian. And he's very surprised to hear that word fly out of a priest's mouth. He's even more surprised to find a bullet flying out of that side of the partition <laughs> in the confession booth. Yeah. Blam! Yeah. Your sins are absolved, my son. <laughs> RSVP this Union soldier. And it's Anson Mount that walks out of the confession booth. And he is permitted to just walk right on through that church aisle out the door, Washington, D.C., 1865. You can do this yeah. in a Catholic church. Murder's okay. Yeah. Yeah, like there were some people that seemed to be like leaving, but they didn't seem to be like leaving to get the police or you know, like there wasn't anybody right. like ringing an alarm. He, he stops and like takes a good long look at the carved statue of Jesus before he walks out. The crimes permitted and ignored within the Catholic Church are numerous. So <laughs> I guess this, this gets lost amongst uh -huh. all of those. Uh -huh. Yeah, usually it's their own they're protecting, but this time, well, I guess maybe he is one of their own if he, if he was in the confession. Is he in fact a Catholic priest? 
In modern <laughs> confession booths, you probably need one of those like corporate office swiper ID cards, right? Oh, you can't just right. go into that side. Yeah. Well, and they also have the like bullet resistant plexi in between the the priest side and the and confessor side to protect the people confessing. Is that a thing? Yeah, ever since 1865 they've had to do that. <laughs> you can also uh buy cigarettes and little bottles of liquor in there. You just have to slide it under the hoe. So uh after the uh, opening credits were in a pitch sesh where Colomini is uh, offering the investment opportunity of a lifetime. Put your money into the Union Pacific Railroad and embark on the glorious Manifest Destiny project that they are offering. You hate this. You're an older, stodgy white guy. You've booked some time at a fancy resort mm. somewhere, mm. but you just got to sit through... The Transcontinental Railroad pitch. <laughs> Doors locked from the outside. Yeah. During Thomas Durant's pitch. How much would you say you spend on transportation every year? <laughs> what if you got to spend a fraction of that up front and have it covered for the rest of the year? How'd you like to be a hero to your friends and family, being able to just produce a transcontinental railroad trip whenever needed? <laughs> Certain blackout dates apply. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, he's, there's a real grandiloquent speech about what a great thing this railroad is going to be. Mark my words, gentlemen. This is fucking spectacular. How much did you miss Colomini watching this scene? It has been a long time since we've been back in Deep Space Nine together, you know? I know. It made me pine for some Colomini new trek, to be honest. Agreed. Yeah. The amount of gravitas he has as an older actor is yeah. is really tremendous. And uh I'd love to see a like, you know, a real wizened veteran Chief O'Brien in these streets. Really great sequence here. We get a shot reverse shot of Durant making his speech and a certain senator in the audience. And as we shot reverse shot back to Durant and back to the senator. The wide shot reveals that this presentation is over, and it's just them holding court together. And Colomini's Durant character has no problem admitting to the the shittiness that this presentation was. Twaddle and shite, I say. There's an implied bribe here that uh, that actually makes a senator walk out of a room. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the racket here is he's going to be building this railroad because he owns like the financial uh, entity that's backing the railroad and the financial entity backing the railroad is being subsidized by the federal government. So he's soliciting investments that he doesn't actually need because it's all being paid for through the largesse of the feds. And this senator is going to benefit because he owns a big swath of land out in Nebraska where uh, this railroad you know, might go through if Colomini wants it to. And that's the edge that Durant has. He can either run this railroad through the senator's land or not with or without his support. It's just dependent on that. Good luck with your land speculation in Nebraska. And the scene ends with the senator being in Durant's pocket, right? Yeah, in the pocket of big rail. One of his many pockets. <laughs> because at this time, you're just wearing layer after layer of burlap 
And every layer has its own number of pockets, right? What the fuck? It was so hot in the old west. What were they yeah. doing? Why the why all the velvet and burlap and wool and burlap? It sure seems as though the Old West would be more shirtless than we tend to see it in movies and television, yeah, right? Yeah, dump them out, Anson Mount. Who invented shorts? You never see shorts in the Old West either. No, I feel like the earliest depictions of shorts I can think of are like colonial uh, British forces in like India or whatever. You think jorts are disparaged nowadays. Mm. You, you'd be the first person to wear jorts in the Old West. Oh. You're going to get run out of town. You you take your Levi's 501, the originals. That you paid a full 50 cents for or whatever. Right. Oh. Sewn by Levi Strauss himself. Yeah. And you make cutoffs. <laughs> <laughs> That's valuable fabric you've just thrown away. Yeah. What do you do with the pants bottoms? I don't know. I don't know what you do. We cut to a train making its way across the land. I thought it was interesting that it was going left to right because I don't know why. Like I feel like that just reads as eastbound in in a movie. Great point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are they doing? I don't know. They're going the wrong way. Yeah. They're taking framing notes from the devil's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> They're going back. That's not the way Nebraska is. I need the direction to California, please. Cullen Bohannon is on his way to the Hell on Wheels encampment. Yeah. And he is unfortunately seated next to a guy reading not on silent mode. Right. And you'd think he would get up and move to the quiet car. That seems to be a technology that comes much later than now. Uh, these two guys are reading aloud about the murder yeah. that Bohannon did in that confession booth. And they have a uh, an argument about where they think this guy's going after death. Yeah. The, these guys are kind of semi-literate and Irish. and uh, Better than being semi-Irish and literate, am I right? Oh, you said it, brother. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be half. <laughs> They're of the mind that uh, you can go to heaven much quicker if you're already there at a church when you get blasted. Yeah. Cullen uh, believes in a, a higher power, but it, it ain't the Lord. So I guess that does answer the question of whether or not he is technically speaking a Catholic priest. Right. <laughs> Do you not believe in a higher power? Yes, sir. Wear it on my head. The camera really loves Anson Mount's face. And this is a scene that, you know, because it's more than one time, establishes the pattern of this. We're really in close yeah. on Anson Mount's face for a lot of this episode. And it really establishes him as a powerful character in a visual language kind of way. When you give people wide shots or two shots, that's diminishing compared to looking a guy in the eyes as he looks down at you, as you so often get in this episode. Yeah. I think it was the way his hair and beard were styled, but I really got Vigo Mortensen, Lord of the Rings energy in this scene in particular. Yeah, yeah. From Anson Mount. If you're a your wife, for example, you might in fact think that this is Vigo Mortensen. <laughs> Why does just just a little bit off? Does my wife see people as Vigo Mortensen more often than other people? 
No, no, but but you know, like her way is just like an observation that's just a little bit off the mark, like oh. that. <laughs> okay, yeah. So yeah, everybody's headed out west to uh, get a working on the railroad, and um, it doesn't seem like anybody's on this train that aren't there for that, right? Yeah, could you imagine getting on this train to like do anything else besides go to the Hell on Wheels camp? You've fallen asleep like you fall asleep on a subway and wake up in Coney Island or something. Oh, oh, crap. (laughs) Why didn't anybody wake me? Uh, Yeah, but like out here to do that, not necessarily with promise of work. Like he hops off the train and climbs under the, the ramp that the pigs are crawling down from the pig car and... Goes and like asks for work from the the site foreman. Tales of fraud and malfeasance in railroad hiring practices. Cullen Bohannon asks what kind of job would be best for him, and Daniel Johnson goes, "That's what I'm trying to figure out." <laughs> <laughs> he is an enthusiastic day drinker. Yeah, even more than we are. Yeah. Some might call him a two-fisted drinker, but that would be very wrong. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, one of of his hands has been blowed off because he was in the war as well on the Union side, which leads to just some, uh, some nice neat tension between the two of them. Daniel Johnson, you know, doesn't ask for a resume in particular, but does... Drop an end bomb when he learns that uh, Cullen is an ex-slave owner and puts him in charge of a black work detail doing like the hardest, most physical labor on this project. I really, really like what a moving target Cullen Bohannon is this entire episode as far as how you're supposed to feel about him based on the information you have in that moment. And there are so many different scenes that change his position on whatever morality scale you might have for a person. Yeah. And this is one of those moments where you're like, oh, oh, this guy's not good at all. We saw him murder a guy in a church, and now he confesses to having slaves. That's no good. But the union guy is the guy that we would naturally be told to like in nine out of ten movies or TV shows depicting a guy from the Confederacy and a guy from the Union. Yeah. And Daniel Johnson is not likable. He is a racist, drunk asshole who has a real chip on his shoulder and thinks of Cullen's past as being an advantage in this context. Yeah. Yeah, because the sort of work he wants to station him at is the cut crew and that's the crew of railroad workers that digs the trail for the rails to be laid in. And this is a crew that is predominantly black. Yeah. One of the members of this crew is Common, who is none too pleased to see their new foreman. You know, new boss looks like the old boss in yeah. a way that a bunch of recently liberated slaves, you know, would be not psyched about this situation. Something don't never change. I did a little bit of research it may surprise you to learn, Hmm. because I had a question about watching this railroad being built that was like, does any of this still exist? Like, are there any intercontinental railroad tracks still around? And the answer is, obviously, no. Huh. But the paths? Yeah. Like, what the cut crew cut for the rails and the pilings and stuff, that all still exists. Right. And modern railroad infrastructure uses all of that, even today. 
I have read a little bit about how like building railroads now in the U.S. is particularly tricky because of the rights of way. Like there's the issue of like having a train go through a place is like you have to like clear the path. Right. Both physically, but also legally. Yeah. And so like one of the reasons we have such shitty infrastructure now is that they didn't maintain a lot of the rights of way and, you know, let them go to seed or whatever. But yeah, this is a... very interesting part of American history that we're seeing depicted here. You know, like these dudes are are not happy with the situation that they have found themselves in after the war. It is a very different feeling from the next scene that we get, a very short scene introducing the Tom Noonan character to us, which you've got to believe becomes a more thoroughly sketched out character as the season goes on. Yeah. He plays Reverend Cole, And he baptizes a Native American for kind of a long time underwater. Like there's a shot, reverse shot pattern here where I was like, oh, let him up. (laughs) He's been under for too long. I thought for a moment he was evil. Yeah. But no, this is ostensibly a, a good reverend. And when the two ride into the Hell on Wheels camp to set up a church, they choose a spot in camp that no one want to church in, uh, especially the sex workers who come up and introduce themselves with some real Californians accents. I love this main <laughs> sex worker here. He's like, what are you doing here? Where here did you sex work? And your kind isn't allowed. Why don't you get on the Continental Railroad and go all the way back to DC? <laughs> We're growing these navel oranges and giving blood jobs. <laughs> Nobody has particularly great teeth in this episode, aside from like Anson Mount and Common, I would say, like, are the standout good teeth havers in this episode. Great observation because you get close ups of those two guys, but then you also get close ups of the sex worker and oh. <laughs> you get you get a mouthful of teeth. In that shot. Her teeth are really not being well taken care of. Yeah. It's very upsetting. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. The, I mean, I guess this is like a church that is a tent that they pitch when they get yeah. to camp. So Yeah. Some people are going to find it hard to fuck during the liturgy, probably. <laughs> My offering plate has comb in it. <laughs> That's called tithing, right? (laughs) You drop 10% of your load. (laughs) Everybody with any religious affiliation has just unsubscribed from the podcast. (laughs) You gotta laugh. We cut over to a very fancy looking rail car where uh, Colomini is beating up the guy that's designing his railway because... This guy's uh, designing for efficiency, and that's not what Kalamini wants. He wants the maximum number of miles. We widen out to the exterior of Kalamini's train car, and there's an Amtrak logo on it. Like, (laughs) oh! (laughs) Damn it! No wonder! It started so long ago! (laughs) Yeah, he's uh, he's getting paid per mile by the federal government. So drawing straight lines on a map to plan out the, the rail routes, not going to work for him because he is in this for the money. He's It's a grift for him. You can tell he's a bad guy because he thinks firing people is going to give him any kind of power. Like it makes him a, a strong figure. 
right. in anyone else's eyes. It just doesn't. Like saying you're fired and he like wants that to be like a, a thing that he's known for. Uh, but right place at the right time for the other guy standing at the map. You look like a bright young man. All he's got to do is keep his mouth shut. Yeah. Promotion for him. Much like that sex worker in the earlier scene. All he's got to do is keep his mouth shut. (laughs) We cut over to the Nebraska Territory. This is far out ahead of the Transcontinental Railroad. You got to scout out where these rails are going. And on the scout team is Robert and Lily scouting out the path. And you don't like how this cough is sounding that Robert's got. Robert's got real foreshadow cough. (laughs) It either means he's too sick to work a full shift or he's too sick to fuck. (laughs) And that's a disappointment to Lily here, along with his stated policy of sending her back to Chicago before they reach Cheyenne territory. they're, They're starting to get into parts of the country where hostile native tribes are living He's worried about her safety, uh, wants her to, you know, start wrapping her mind around heading back. You want me to go to Chicago? Lead the way. She's more concerned about his health, and that's the tension within their relationship. Yeah. And Lily is, uh, you know, has a British accent, so, um, you know, presumably grew up across the pond. She's like one of the top build uh, actors in this show, so I presume she becomes kind of a main cast character but she she starts far from the the central cast out here in this C storyline. Yeah, if you think based on this scene, she's just Robert's girlfriend or whatever, you're about to be blown away at how <laughs> powerful she is. I really like her. Yeah. Great establishing episode for this character. Yeah. Back in the Hell on Wheels camp, it's night where the poker game between Bahan and Daniel Johnson and some rando. <laughs> yeah, some some NPCs from Jazz Horse. Yeah. <laughs> the people we've met at this table, huh, Marvin? This is a scene that gives us a little more of Bahannon's backstory. He had a small tobacco farm back home, and yes, he had slaves. Yes, he had women slaves. But there's a big but here. Everyone I know has a big but. He discloses to the group that he paid those slaves and gave them their freedom before the Emancipation Proclamation even happened. He was ahead of the curve. And if you think that's surprising, he also fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War. Yeah. Because to him, that flag is about, like, culture. Yeah, our (laughs) our heritage. Uh (laughs) Honor. Yeah, we don't unpack too much of why he would then go to war for the people that wanted to preserve the institution that he had decided was no bueno. I would say an appropriate amount of incredulity here transmitted by uh, Daniel Johnson and the non-player character playing poker with him. (laughs) You are an odd duck, Bohannon. Daniel Johnson, not a moral man by any extent, but is like... Fuck me, like, say what you want about the tenets of national socialism. At least it's an ethos. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you believe, man? Nothing. He believes in nothing, Labovsky, nothing. Until you find out later, like, what this is all about, what Bohannon's whole deal is, this is one of those scenes that struck me as, you just want to talk the least in front of your new boss, right? 
Like, you don't want to give this much backstory so soon at a drunken poker game. Right. Drunken poker game, great time to get in good with the, the leadership of a new workplace. Mm-hmm. Get yourself into that game as soon as possible, but maybe don't do what Bohanna does here. <laughs> we just like make himself the main character of the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is his tell just like oversharing <laughs> poker? <laughs> what does he have? <laughs> He's saying crazy shit. <laughs> He's got pocket aces. I fucking know it. <laughs> <laughs> like the smoke hasn't even cleared from his crazy Civil War story when he's asked, you know, why are you here? Like, what are you married or whatever? And he's like, yeah, my my wife died during the war. So that's sad. Yeah. And they're like, God damn it. He, he, he flopped kings, didn't he? <laughs> so what? I'm like supposed to buy you a drink now? God. Yeah. This guy's all over the place. Ugh. So we cut over to a steamy sex scene between Robert and Lily. And uh, this is, you know, before people knew that maybe you should like keep your distance from people that are coughing like this. He seems to be fairly concerned that one day he'll die having sex with her, given his <laughs> respiratory issues. Yeah. But the next day, it's the camp that's getting their backs blown out. <laughs> <laughs> By the native population. Yeah. The establishing shot of this attack is so great because like so often the depiction of, you know, bows and arrows used as weapons is like kind of cartoonish, right? You can hear them fly through the air. They're kind of like wobbly. They hit people and knock them back and knock them down. But seeing an arrow go through and through someone and surprise that victim with what's happened. I love this. I love this whole moment. I didn't even know that that was possible. But yeah, this yeah. guy gets one that goes like through his belly and he like looks at the, you know, wagon cart behind him that the arrow has embedded itself in. And he's like, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. That is a well strung arrow when, when the victim doesn't even feel it go through, basically. He takes another one to the neck. So he can't call out for help. Yeah. And then all the warriors descend on the camp. This attack is brutal and it is fast. And Robert and Lily are lucky to notice that it's going down before their tent is a focus of the action. They're lucky they didn't save it for the morning, right? Like, get your fucking done at night. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in the daytime, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Robert is really worried about the maps that they've been making on the survey team. And so they like load that stuff up into these like amazing leather map satchels and a bunch of the maps are stuck together. They're like trying to roll them up, but they're like crunching and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Lily. She's like, Robert, I told you to use that Nike shoebox. What are you doing? (laughs) Oh, so they retreat into the forest, and this is the scene I was referring to earlier that was uh, very desaturated in color. Yeah. Really loved all that happens in here. You get the sense that Robert's going to be a liability in terms of their their stealth ability in this forest. He just can't keep his cough inside. The cough is going to give them away. One of the warriors uh, follows them into the forest and is like looking around for them. This dude has really scary scars and a, you know, like a messed up eye. Yeah. I notice he doesn't uh, do a lot of uh, arrow shooting for accuracy, which I imagine only having one one working eye makes pretty tough. <laughs> I don't know, man. When he uh, 
he shoots Lily through her outstretched hand and like pins her hand to her chest. Yeah, but he's like 10 feet away from her. (laughs) Yeah, anyone could do that, right? He's not a sniper, you know? (laughs) That's what I'm saying. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah, so she has to like pull this arrow out. It's like gone through the palm of her hand and then into her shoulder. Yeah. And she has to pull it through her hand and out of her shoulder while Robert is like wrestling this guy. And then she goes and like rams the arrow underneath his chin and then like, I guess, through his soft palate and into his brain. This scene is so rugged. Oh, it's great. It, it sadly takes one of the Cheyenne warriors off the board because I kind of wanted to know this guy a little more. Yeah. But holy moly, Lily. What an amazing moment for her. Wow. Wow. Yeah. With that guy dead, she, you know, rolls over and looks at Robert, who caught a a big old knife to the belly during this. And she realizes she's alone in the world. And uh, it's time to make haste and get out of here because uh, there's still a whole bunch of warriors out there. RSVP Robert. RSVP One-Eyed Cheyenne Warrior. Yeah. The credit for that guy is Pawnee Killer. Yeah? Are the Pawnee like a sub-tribe of the Cheyenne? What's interesting about them being Pawnee is Pawnee was very specifically the tribe in Dances with Wolves. Oh, shoot. From that famous scene where the Pawnee warriors attacked the encampment. Many Pawnee warriors enlisted to serve as Indian scouts in the U.S. Army to track and fight their old enemies, the Lakota, Dakota, and Cheyenne on the Great Plains. So they're not the same. So these are like the Maquis. Maquis? Of the Cheyenne. Or the Pawnee, yeah? Well, they're specifically not the Cheyenne. They're, That's what I'm saying. They're the Maquis of the Indians. They're the, they're the Maquis to the Cheyenne. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. They're rubber people, as Chicote might put it. <laughs> Back at the Hell on Wheels camp, Bohannon wakes up in... Just a pile. When you fall asleep at the poker table, that's a bad look. And when you fall asleep drooling, Mm -hmm. even worse. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. He's got a real ringer of a hangover. Yeah. Rise and shine, Bohannon. He does not want a morning drink. No. Either. It's another beautiful day on the railroad. Daniel Johnson's offered uh, whiskey, hair of the dog. (laughs) It's not something that he's into. No. Now, I'm starting to suspect that uh, both of these guys might have a little bit of a drinking problem. <laughs> Beer is for breakfast around here. Drink or be gone. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next gen skin safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and 
new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times, and they are delicious, fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. It has been a long time coming that podshop.biz is as good as it is. The stuff on there is just really high quality, and there's a ton of variety. We've got t-shirts and sweatshirts, obviously, but we've got hats, we've got mugs, we've got water bottles, patches, mouse pads, shower shoes. There's so much great stuff on there. I'm really proud of what we have on offer. I'm proud that the store has a lot of really great size-inclusive options. And uh, I think there's enough variety that just about any friend of DeSoto could find something that they'd really love to have in their collection at podshop.biz. So head over there and give it a look. Why don't you? Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. We cut over to the cut crew line where Common and a coworker argue about the ex-slave boss that's running the line. 
And uh, Common does not like how much of a cheerleader Bohannon is in this scene. They don't need that kind of encouragement. They need their spiritual songs to pass the time. And that's when Common starts one up. Yeah. It's really directed at Cullen in a real, like, fuck you way. Like, we don't like that you're the boss kind of way. Yeah. New boss, huh? Barf. We start to understand Cullen as a person who does not like to be disrespected, but also isn't going to make a huge issue out of a little thing like this. I love how indifferent Bohannon is in this scene, though. Like, if this bugs him, he doesn't betray that. It's just, it's a wordless scene. It's like, I see what you're doing, you know? Yeah. And on the other side, he isn't like, look, guys, I've had slaves before, <laughs> and I feel like I'm pretty cool. So... <laughs> Yeah. Maybe try to give me a chance or whatever. Like, he doesn't go that route either. He's not virtue signaling. Like, yeah. the slaves I had, I set free because I believe in that. <laughs> hey, you know what an appropriate time for that story is? Here, Colin Bohannon. <laughs> <laughs> not getting drunk with your boss at the poker table. You know, a lot of people think I'm racist, but some of my best friends are my ex-slaves. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yeah, tone of the episode really changed when he crouched down and told the cut crew that story. Yeah, it's like you were saying, like it really like changes a lot how you're supposed to feel about this character from moment yeah. to moment. Meanwhile, Durant's train has stopped on the tracks. And this is such an interesting moment of like technology because you got to stop the train sometimes to hook up with the telegraph. And that's what's happening here. Durant and a telegraph operator are sending and receiving communiques, and there is one that Durant receives that is incredibly upsetting, and that's the news of Robert's death. And then a very long telegraph that's like, Lily grabs arrow from own hand and chest. Stop. (laughs) She used that arrow to stab through warrior's chin and soft palate. Stop. It was hella grotesque. (laughs) You wouldn't even believe it if you were there. Stop. I mean, she seemed like a pretty soft and gentle character in the first scene, but then now you see this. Stop. And you're like, what am I supposed to make of her? Stop. You really hope she didn't catch that cough from Robert. Stop. It's basically the only thing that could take her down. Stop. Because, like, when you think about it, like, they basically exchanged all the bodily fluids in the last 12 hours or so. Stop. What didn't fly in or at Lily over the course of their survey mission definitely hit those maps. Stop. (laughs) Legibility of maps now in question. Stop. More regions of country appear to be snow-covered. Stop. As if there were many options for rail travel for Durant, Durant's like, set a course for hell on wheels. Engage. (laughs) Like, that's where he was already going, right? It has to have been where he was already going. Yeah. He's just, uh, you know, going as fast as he possibly can, and he sends a telegram to the bored to let them know that that's what's up. Is this the kind, I mean, the fancy car notwithstanding, is this the sort of train you want to be on at the time? Just like the three car setup? 
one fancy car got to be for uh, Durant, but the other two cars have to be for the telegraph guy and... Yeah, like the staff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't see in those other cars, but I really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, we got another little one train coming over here. There was a, uh, a popular telegraph operation that would uh, show where Durant's private train car was on a map, you know, in real time. <laughs> And Durant got so upset with it that he bought the entire telegraph company. <laughs> and it's weird because Durant kind of claimed to be this like self-made man who's super rich, but almost all of his money comes from government contracts and like, <laughs> you know, it's like, wait, so you don't like it, you know, when other people take money from the government, but for you, it's okay. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Classic. That kind of guy. <laughs> After all, what is a drama without a villain? I really love the restraint of this show not doing the thing that so many period set shows and movies tend to do, which is like the red hashed line across a map or even like a shot of a map in general showing where our characters are in the country. I don't really need any more information than like Nebraska territory. Right. It's nicely vague, and like the one time I can think of that you do see a map, it's the one that... It's just covered in Robert ropes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was stabbing at, as it were. Do you think if he were to survive his murder, he would have gone back home and written Robert's ropes of business? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they still use that in Congress to this day. Like, that would have been the name of his porno, but instead of, like, mm. oh, a yeah. film, it would have been just, like, a slideshow like they show in, in the camp later on. Yeah, it's a bunch of stills. Uh, the yeah. first one is, this ain't Congress. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the cut crew is uh, working really hard. So hard, in fact, that one of the dudes is, like, probably getting heat stroke or something. Well, you look at those layers. Yeah. And the long sleeves and the long pants. Hey, Willie, cut them off. Yeah. Just get a pair of scissors. Those pants can be shorts, my friend. Yeah, I know. I know, but if you're wearing shorts, you're getting dirt inside your boots, aren't you? Yeah. Like, that's got to be part of it, and you don't want little pebbles in your boots. Yeah. Common is helping him get a drink, and... Cullen comes up and is like, hey, man, like, what are you guys doing with this big pile of dirt here? I told you to put it over on the other side. And Common's like, oh, yeah, but like we're about to start filling something in over here. So I figured it'd be easier than going and getting it from elsewhere to do the fill in. And this is like that moment where, you know, the the cruelest, most unredeemable boss would be like, you do what I tell you and give me 50 pushups or whatever. And instead, Cullen, who is still very obviously hungover, is like, oh, okay, like just, you know, I need to be involved in like high level decision making stuff like that going forward. But lest you believe the cruel and irredeemable boss character is totally absent from this scene, in rides Daniel Johnson on yeah. horseback. Who's like swinging a liquor bottle over his head. <laughs> complaining that this dude is getting a drink when it's not break time. Do you think riding horseback with a hangover is good or bad for a hangover? Because famously, like, my wife's hangover makes driving next to impossible. Like, she gets very carsick during 
a hangover time. I don't have that affliction, but I just wonder, like, would my wife be good on horseback after a night of drinking? I think probably not. I'm guessing no. Yeah. I was once in an off-road vehicle with a hangover, and I found it very challenging. Oh, geez. Daniel Johnson's got a pretty sturdy constitution then, huh? Yeah, he's a serious drinker. What is, how is he holding the, the whip that he hits the guy with? Because he's got to be holding the reins of his horse with one hand. He's a very practiced whipper, isn't he? Does he just have the whip tied around the stump on the other side? <laughs> well, anyways, his horse kicks the dude that was getting the drink, and uh, this claims his life. Cullen visits Comet in the tent later that night, and it's raining, and they have a pretty intense conversation about the, like, kind of men they are. Like, they they sort of are both men on missions of revenge now. Common is sharpening an Arkansas toothpick, getting ready to get some Rowenge of his own. And uh, Cullen's, like, trying to talk him out of it, and Common sort of reads him like the book he is. Ain't nothing good gonna come from this. This is a great, great scene. This is one of my favorite scenes, because Bohannon's in there like, look, uh, Daniel Johnson killed your buddy, but he didn't have to be a dick about it. I think we can all agree that kind of spiking the football at the end was unnecessary. Yeah. And there's a racial dynamic here that is both like on the surface and also underneath that I wanted to talk about a little bit, which was in an earlier scene, we see how much money things cost in the camp. And one of the things with a value is a water bucket. A water bucket's 25 cents. And when Bohannon helps himself to Common's water bucket. On the one hand, the look that Common gives him is like, don't drink my fucking water that I spent 25 cents on. But on the other hand, it made me wonder, is it unusual for a white person to drink out of a black person's water bucket? And if that isn't conveying some sort of message to Common in that moment. I mean... Is it unusual for a white person to even be like visiting with a black person and like checking on them? Yeah, yeah. Was in my mind, and like, Common has like a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation in here, and they, like this is like his character tripling down on like that not having been the unalloyed good that it's been sold to his people as. Like they're emancipated, but what? There's a line of dialogue here that clangs just a little bit, but I have a feeling is made better throughout the course of the season and the seasons, which is Bohannon telling Common, like, you just got to let go of your past, man. And, and like a brighter future is out there for you, but it's pretty fucking rich coming from a white guy we hardly know toward a black guy who just got emancipated and watched his friend die because some white asshole had his horse kick him in the face, yeah. you know? Well, and a white guy that we know to be murdering people, uh, <laughs> In cold blood because of something that happened in the past also. But this is good pilot episode shit here where not every subtext is totally elucidated, where you're still left to wonder what things mean and what beginnings are are starting between characters. The Irish buddies that uh, he made on the train have set up a little like Nickelodeon basically where they like project pictures and like one of them sings and uh, Cullen goes and pays them a visit 
You want to stay later after the show? We're showing Robert's Ropes of Business. <laughs> you got to pay extra for that one. Yeah. There's like an early show and a late show. <laughs> one of the nice things about this being a tent is that we don't have to clean the floors after. <laughs> Bohannon's like, yeah, you know, I'd love to stay, but uh, I need to drink or yeah. fake drink as it is. He meets up with Daniel Johnson and... During their tying of ones on, it's clear that they have very different feelings about their roles in the Civil War and what it might have done to either diminish them or make them better. Johnson seems almost wistful about crossing a bunch of moral lines during the war. And Bohannon here is righteous almost to the point of being a little grating about it, like almost goading Johnson with his righteousness. So you did nothing that you were ashamed of? It does great against him a little bit. Yeah. That's clear. It's also an interesting tension for a pilot episode. Like he is claiming to have had this kind of like morally pure experience in the war, which is hard to square with the fact that it was a war at all and that he was on the Confederate side. So I'm very curious what, he means by that, what that means to him. But then Meridian comes up and Daniel Johnson whips it out <laughs> under the table. Unclear whether or not it has been out the whole time. It seems unusually fast Yeah, that this weapon has been cocked. So for a man that drinks with as much enthusiasm as he does, he has been pretty sharp on, uh, on the issue yeah. of assessing who Cullen is and why he may have come out to Hell on Wheels camp, which is, uh, yeah, he's like hunting down all of the people that were involved in what happened to his wife at Meridian. And he actually learned some new shit in this moment about what happened to his wife. He assumed she hung herself and Daniel Johnson explains like, no, the sergeant strangled her and then strung her up. And the revelation that there was another person there, this this sergeant, is pretty earth-shattering for Cullen. And that the sergeant is at the Hell on Wheels camp, especially. Yeah. Well, he's out here. It's like it implies that uh, he's um, in the region, but not necessarily like right then and there. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I thought... You, you didn't think that that was him in the very last scene? Well, I thought it, I thought it was like sort of implied that it was maybe Cullen Meany. Oh, I... I thought the two riders on horseback that Bohannon sees in the very last scene of the show, one of them was a sergeant, and that was hmm. the guy. You're saying he never got promoted? No. After Meridian, they didn't give him anything? Well, I mean, there was the messy stringing up of someone's wife, probably. <laughs> That's a career-limiting move in, in most lines of work. Yeah. Depends. You know, if Sherman is your boss, maybe not so much. When Bohannon asks Johnson to name the sergeant, Common slits Johnson's throat from behind, and he can't say anything with a throat full of post-nasal drip. Right. And this scene was really special for Anson Mount's line read of no. No! There was such a desperate sound to it yeah. That you never hear him come anything close to for the entire episode. Yeah. He is so hurt by this moment. 
it's a two letter word that he manages to get to contain. Like, don't get me wrong. I do want him dead and I want his death to be painful and gross in this way. But couldn't you have waited two seconds, Captain? He was just about to explain the whole thing. I would love to murder Daniel Johnson on my own. Stop. <laughs> and it is very surprising that Common has done that in front of me before giving me a key piece of information. Stop. And Common's like, I'm right here, dude. You do not need to put this in a telegram. Yeah. I want to keep watching this show, but they've taken pretty interesting characters off the board already. Like for Ted Levine's character to be dead already. Yeah. Has an effect on me. Like I kind of wanted him to be a bad guy for a longer amount of time. Yeah, he's real hateable. Yeah. So RSVP Daniel Johnson. Damn. We get a uh, a long speech by Colomini's character here about uh, you know his vision for the future of the nation and for the future of guys like him and. Um, this is kind of intercut with uh, Lily stumbling with blood all over her hands through the wilderness and the Native American guy that got baptized finding the aftermath of an attacked camp, you know, arrows and stuff strewed around. And all those horse bones. Yeah. They burned the horses. Yeah. They didn't do anything wrong. No. They were just following orders, right? So sad. The horses are innocent. Hell on Wheels camp uh, has picked up and moved and uh, presumably headed off to Nebraska. Yeah. This is a scene you often get in a pilot episode, a long monologue, just speaking in metaphor about what this show is going to be about. Make no mistake, blood will be spilt. Lives will be lost. Fortunes will be made and men will be ruined. And what's so interesting about Durant's monologue is what a shithead he depicts himself as during. He's like, I'm not the hero of the story. I'm a real piece of shit. But a real piece of shit needs to be the instrument that builds this railroad. And I'm comfortable with my shittiness if it means getting this project done. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) And the very last scene of the whole episode is a scene that depicts Bohannon watching a couple of riders of horses come to town. And I think one of them might be the sergeant that Daniel Johnson started to talk about. That's what I think anyway. Well, he starts fingering his shoe when these dudes show up. Fingering his what? His shoe (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, that is what he fingers. Yeah, but uh, we don't see what happens in that scene because that's the end of the episode. Did you like this episode of Hell on Wheels, Adam? I've had a, a Deadwood-shaped hole in my heart since that show ended. I really love a Western television show, and this one really got to me. I mean, being a fan of Anson Mount's work through Star Trek, I think, helped. But you could argue Colomini's the main character of this episode, even more than Bohannon. Like, in terms of pages of dialogue, especially. Yeah. I really thought... As pilot episodes go, the job is to make you interested in in watching the series. Right. And this one was effective to me in that way. It's interesting how a lot of characters talk about morality and 
sort of have morality measuring contests with each other in this episode. And it seems like this morality obsession is more of a modern thing than it would be for a past person to be into. Mm-hmm. So it, it feels very interesting to hear past people talk in such modern terms about their relationships with what they've done in order to achieve what they have. I love how it looks. It's a really good looking show. I am interested in what happens next. Interested enough to maybe keep watching it even. I know we don't have a lot of time for recreational television, especially a multi-season uh, <laughs> prestige television show. Yeah. But uh, maybe we bring this one back for a couple bonus episodes from time to time. I think it'd be fun. Uh, yeah, I would be open to that. One of the things that we talked about at the end of the Cheers episode about Kate Mulgrew is like, if you're casting for Captain, you pop in that tape and you can see it. Yeah. And I think one interesting aspect to Anson Mount's performance here is that like, how many tapes do you pop in of this show before you gather that there is your Captain? I don't know if this pilot episode is sufficient for me to get there the way that the three-episode arc of Cheers was able to get me there for Kate Mulgrew. Yeah. I mean, in terms of gravitas, Anson Mount's got it. Right. In terms of complexity, he's got it in this episode. But, like, there are many scenes in in Discovery and in Strange New Worlds where he's got a softer touch. And I've got to believe that we're going to get, like, soft touch flashback here in Hell on Wheels where we learn a little bit more about Cullen Bohannon and his relationship to his wife, you know? That's interesting. Yeah, I think um, it's a very different type of character than Pike. Like, the imagery in the church kind of reminded me of uh, the episode of Discovery where they found the church. Yeah, great call. You know, we've talked to Anson Mount in the couple of times we've gotten to interview him about having a scholar of religion as a parent has really informed a lot of the roles that he's taken. And I didn't know how like literal that was until watching this, but yeah, it's an environment that he seems to uniquely wield as an actor for, you know, interesting energy. And the roles have such a specific articulation about those themes and his character's positions. Right. Right. Within those structures, you know? Yeah, so uh, I really liked this, and I uh, it was really fun to see Kalamini again, and yeah. really interesting to see what a uh, younger Anson Mount was up to. You know, what it looks like when his hair isn't three or four inches high because he is the captain of a starship. It made me wonder, when we go back to the pilot episode of Strange New Worlds, how much of that those earlier scenes where he's grizzled in a cabin... You know, how much of that was sending a message, like a visual meant to shed a past role and embrace a new one, the way that going from hell on wheels would be going into being the lead of a Star Trek show for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Adam, do you want to see if we have anything in the priority one inbox? Oh, yeah. All I got to do is uh, hop in my fancy rail car Mm -hmm. and head on over there. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Ben, our first priority one message is of a promotional nature. Okay. That message goes like this. I'm an OG FOD who moved to Hollywood during the recent unpleasantness 
to finally pursue a professional acting career. Wow. Imagine my surprise when, last year, I found myself in an audition room facing Robert Beltran himself. Whoa. Who cast me and is now directing me in what might be the best play of the 20th century. Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman plays at the Casa 0101 Theater in East L.A. June 9th through July 16th. And Robert is doing a magnificent job with a top-notch cast. Wow. How about that? (laughs) This is so cool. So the message for all Los Angeles-based FODs is to come see Death of a Salesman in Boyle Heights, directed by Robert Beltran and starring an FOD, Jack Bernaz. That rules. Uh, Congrats on getting cast in that, Jack. And uh, I really hope people will come out and see the show. I definitely want to go see this with you. We should make a night of that. That'd be fun. Let's book some tickets for ourselves right after we get off these microphones. Yeah, let's buy our tickets before all the FODs do. Yeah, It's going to be amazing. Yeah, so come out and see the show. You might see us in the audience. How about Jack trying to give Robert Beltran... The greatest Trek bump. <laughs> Sounds great. The mind's reels. <laughs> I just can't even. That's so cool. Yeah. I love that. Congratulations on getting the role. Yeah. Adam, our next Priority One message is from Andrew D. It's to us, Ben and Adam, and it goes like this. Just finished your ST Prodigy S1 apps. Gotta admit, your dedication to the Barnes Franks bit took serious moxie. Well done. Question. Any chance you'd consider doing a Twin Peaks sideshow? I'd love to hear your inimitable take on fish in percolators and all the zany bull plop of season two. The Greatest Peaks needs you. Jeez, oh, the, the Greatest Peaks sounds like a restaurant that <laughs> neither of us should open. <laughs> yeah, if we if our career starts floundering someday, that might be the, the only option we have. I like Twin Peaks a lot, obviously, but maybe uh, maybe not enough to do a full-blown show about. I uh, have never seen it. Oh, it's weird. You no, know, it's a lot of people's fave. It's weird. <laughs> no kidding? It's fun, though. I like it. Well, maybe maybe that's another idea for a, uh, a bonus app yeah. someday. Yeah, keep giving us ideas for bonus apps in the P1s. That's fun. Yeah. I'll eat some pie and talk about a TV show with you any day of the week, Adam. Damn Good Podcast would be a great name for that, huh? There you go. That's probably already taken. Oh, yeah. yeah. These Priority One messages, like all Priority One messages, go a long, long way in supporting the production of our show. You can have us read your words at MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself in Edward Larkin? I'm a little embarrassed to talk about my Larkin, but I'm going to try to do that (laughs) in in kind of a clinical way. You know how like doctors Mm. talk about things that are sometimes embarrassing, but they like do it in a clinical fashion. Right. You know, to to make it more palatable. Everything that happens after you turn your head and cough is kind of the tone you're going to go for right now. So with that being said, my Edward Larkin is the sex worker getting her butt pounded in a, in a tent with an open flap. And here's why. Here's where I take it into the, uh, into the clinical direction. Oh, clinical? 
<laughs> and by that, I mean like the, the professional production and acting direction. Okay. To do that as two actors, that's not fun. It's not fun and it's not easy and it's not sexy. You're just in a fucking tent acting like you're fucking yeah. for a, a three-second you know, tracking shot to pass you. Like your, your atmosphere. Like if you move to LA to make it as an actor and your agent is calling you up and saying like, hey, you got a part. This is not the one you're hoping that they're telling you you got, right? I just want to say this part is out there Miriam times, especially in Westerns. You see this scene in a Western all the time. Uh-huh. The sex worker tent in full view. Pretty much how you know you're watching a Western. Yeah. And, you know, rather than making this like a joke, like the Edward Larkin joke or whatever, this part caught my eye. And it just reminded me that like, there are no small parts for actors. And a shot like that, may reveal something that that makes you chuckle or whatever. But those are two real actors doing real work that is real difficult. Yeah. And uh, maybe not the most fun type of work to tell a relative about, but important nonetheless. So I'm going to make the sex worker in that scene my Edward Larkin for that reason. What about you, Ben? Oh, yeah. My uh, Edward Larkin was doing a different kind of pounding, Adam. Mm. I believe this is the scene where Common and uh, the guy that gets kicked in the face by the horse are uh, first in the trench, and the guy is is uh, really thirsty. He's maybe having heat stroke or something like that. There was a guy in the background who is meant to be stimulating, like building some kind of wooden truss system. I noticed that guy. (laughs) Great call. He's got his hammer turned. I think he's got his hammer turned around the wrong way. Like he's. What are you hammering back there, man? (laughs) You're hammering nothing. You're hammering nothing, and it looks like he's hitting it with the claw, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, Daniel Johnson. You know, all about staying on time, on shift, and not taking any unnecessary breaks. Who is he going to be more upset at? Yeah. The guy who needs water to keep working or hammering guy, hammering nothing. I just feel like the the amount of scrutiny that Daniel Johnson is putting on the liberated men in this camp is unfair. Yeah. Daniel Johnson doing a whole third kind of hammering. (laughs) He's hammering whiskey. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of hammering in this pilot episode, isn't there, Ben? <laughs> it's replete with hammering, Adam. Yeah. Good Larkins, both. It's been fun sitting around here talking about this show with you. This was it, Ben. Spring break's over, isn't it? Next week, got some uh, some strange worlds that are new, and we're going to talk about them right here on Greatest Trek. Thanks for sticking with us throughout our spring break. I hope it was enjoyable for all the FODs out there the way it was for us. What a yeah. what a fun little detour. Yeah. I really thought this was great. The FODs that didn't stick with us? Yeah. They're fucking dead to us. Yeah. And now it's time to go back to school with season two of Strange New Worlds. <laughs> One of those cool schools that teaches you how to work on cars and stuff. Yeah, and the teachers all like turn the chair around and sit on them backwards. Yeah. You could call them by their first names. Yeah. I love this. It's good stuff. Smoke pot with them in the library. Hell yeah. Just describing my own high school now. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. 
I mean, they didn't smoke pot with me, but they smoked pot with the cool kids. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> they made you watch. <laughs> they, they pot cucked you. <laughs> Greatest Trek is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. It's hosted by Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica, and it's produced and edited by Wendy Pretty. Next week, it's time to get into the second season of Strange New Worlds. Episodes will continue to come out on Fridays, so Ben and Adam will be back in a week with a review of the premiere. It's called The Broken Circle. Thank you to Adam Ragusea for composing all of the original music for this show. He has a podcast and a YouTube cooking channel, and you can find those by searching for Adam Ragusea. Thanks to Nick Dittmore for creating the show art, and Bill Tilly for managing the At Greatest Trek social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Mastodon. Follow those accounts to stay up to date and use the hashtag GreatestTrek when you talk about the show online. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, there are a lot of ways you can do that. Become a member at MaximumFun.org slash join. Get something for yourself or a friend at Podshop.biz or book a P1 at MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Greatest Trek. This has been Tales of Fraud and Malfeasance in Railroad Hiring Practices. Brought to you by Granny's Tomato Sauce. Other tomato sauces are thin and watery and should go to hell. And by Screw You Pal Tires. If you can find a better set of tires, screw you, pal. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.